That was just like right on cue. You guys are so good. Um, What's well, a pleasure to be in God's Word with you guys this morning. So as you gathered from our scripture reading, we're going to be in John chapter 1, um, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to go through verse 29. But as, as we're setting the scene, or what we, what we spend time in God's Word learning this morning, I want to tell you stories, a couple at the beginning, or just one. A couple months ago, I took my boys on a camping trip. And my boys had not been on a camping trip before that point, so this was like the, the initial excursion of me taking the boys camping, which was something I enjoyed quite a lot as a kid. And it came at what felt like a really inconvenient time. There was a lot going on in my life. There was a lot going on in our family. Um, it was in the middle of a weekend, which was going to be my only weekend at home, for about six weeks or five weeks or something like that. And it just felt like the wrong time to go camping because there's just too much going on. And then to add on top of that, the boys get done with school on Friday and we are loading all of our stuff up and we're already running late. And therefore what happened in my heart is like the stress level starts to rise. It's like, I'm about to disconnect from everything normal and go to a place where tranquility and where peace are supposed to kind of reign. And like, I've got inside of me just kind of bubbling up this angsty feeling. And that's what was happening as I'm getting ready to go camping. And then we're late to go meet our friends at the campsite. And that's just the craziest thing ever to be late to go camping. But that's what I was feeling. We eventually we get to where we're camping up north of Buchanan. We set up our campsite. We get dinner ready. And what happened is that all those feelings of anxiousness, all the feelings that would seek to take away peace, started to melt away. We ate dinner together, everyone went to sleep, and myself and two other dad friends of mine sat around the fire, and as we sat around the fire, what we experienced was this overwhelming feeling of peace. You sat there, it's totally dark, it's in the middle of a community called Felton, which if you didn't know that that's what it's called, you would miss it because it's so small. But we're sitting there looking up at the stars, surrounded by blackness, and you see stars. And you say, this is a peaceful experience. This is a peaceful place. But yet I knew, the other two uh, men sitting around the fire with me, we knew that that was just a temporary thing. That's not a peace that can last forever. That's not a peace that lasts for eternity because Monday is going to start again soon. And with that, work starts and school starts and life starts. And for just that moment, there's disconnection and there's this beautiful feeling, feeling of peace. I think for many of us that we long for a feeling and a sense of peace, that deep experiential knowledge that inside of our heart and inside of our soul that we are at peace. That the angst and that the difficulties that we're experiencing in life have comfort in the middle of them. That's what we want. That's what we desire. As we read in John chapter 1, as we light a candle of peace today, as we enter into the Advent season, what we're going to see from the pages of God's word is that Jesus came to bring us peace. Not the same kind of peace that we experience when we're sitting around a campfire 
um, and gazing up at the stars. Not the same kind of peace that we experience when our team wins. Lydia sent our family a group text yesterday, and she said, feeling a little stressed here. And what it was was a picture of her watch, and her heart rate was 131. Not the normal, like, 60 or 70 that people normally experience, but 131. Why? Because you want an expected result. You want your team to win. But what we long for deeper than our team to win and long for deeper than anything else is a sense of peace with God. And that's what John is announcing to us in these verses in um, John 1. In order for peace to be a big deal, there first has to be something that causes our peace to be upset. That causes a lack of peace. That's just common sense. For the nation of Israel, as we set the context for what's going on in this passage, the nation of Israel is experiencing a sense in which there is not peace for them. Their nation is in turmoil. Their um, political leadership is in turmoil. They are under the oppression of a foreign government. And to take that, these are people who have been called out by God, out of slavery, out of sin, Um, Even as we went back into our series in Genesis, when God calls to Abram in Genesis, he says, hey, Abraham, leave your home and your family and your father's house and come to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And four or five thousand years later, they still haven't gotten all the way to that point. They're not feeling like they've arrived there because when they look at their at their president, what they don't see is God being their God, reigning over them in the way they expect. What they see is Caesar. What they see is Caesar's emissary, Herod. What's going on right here is for 700 years, they haven't heard God's voice to them. See, the nation of Israel had grown accustomed to being a people that heard from God on a regular basis. The entire Old Testament is the story of how God relates with his people and how he's interacting with them. How he over and over says, I'm your God and you're my people. And this is how I'm calling you to live. And this is what I'm going to do for you and through you. But yet for 700 years, that hasn't happened. Since the time of Isaiah, they haven't heard from the prophets. But now, something's changing. There's something bubbling up under the surface. What's bubbling up under the surface is that in the first part of John we looked at last week, John, the apostle, goes to great detail to let the people know something's changing. The climate is changing. What is happening is that the word of God, not just something that you hear from a prophet, but God's very word has come alive and has come to dwell among you. In verse 14, he's going to tell us that we've seen his glory, God's glory, through this word incarnate. And that's what the whole book of John is going to do. It's going to unpack what that looks like. Because Kirk pointed us to John chapter 20 last week, where John gives us the purpose. It's beautiful when a book gives you its purpose statement up front. Because all of a sudden you say, hey, wait, now I know why I'm reading this book and what question I'm trying to answer. The question that John is trying to help us answer The question that John is trying to help the first century audience answer is, who is this Jesus? 
And if we know who that is, then we get to the purpose statement, which says, these things are written that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. I'm just going to ask a non-rhetorical question. This is an audience participatory question. Okay? How many of us long for life? Okay, yeah, you can raise your hand on this one or not. We long to experience life. How many of us long for peace? How most of, many of us love to have not just comfort in like a there, there, I hope you feel better, but true comfort from knowing that we're loved and accepted and safe. I like that. I desire that. That's what John is going to give us this morning. Unlike the other three Gospels, John doesn't go into great, te- into great detail to tell us the nativity story. He doesn't tell about angels announcing good news to shepherds. He doesn't tell us about the flight into Egypt. He doesn't tell us about the return. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' growing up days. But all of a sudden, Jesus breaks onto the scene in an adult way, manifesting himself um, at the Jordan River, which we're going to see a little bit in just a moment. So where are we at? 700 years of God's silence. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, shows up on the scene. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he's announcing something big. Apparently, the ministry of John the Baptist has kind of gathered some buzz around it because the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, it says that the Levites and the priests, and it's also going to let us know By inference, in verse 24, they had been sent by the Pharisees. Therefore, some of the Pharisees among them as well, these are the religious leaders of the day, have come out to John at the Jordan River at Bethany and said, we we need to know what's going on here. We need to put our stamp of approval on it. We need to know what's happening here. The interesting thing, though, that I want you to see this morning is what they're asking. They're asking John some kind of a question. And the question goes, as John records it to us, like this. Who are you? That's a pretty um, generic question. I ask that question on a regular basis to people. You ask that question on a regular basis to people. Who are you? And oftentimes the response goes, hey, my name is so-and-so. Or you can call me this. But that's not the response that John the Baptist gives to the Pharisees, which means that they're asking a deeper question than just who are you on a surface level. And John's response gives that away to us. Do you see the twice emphaticness of what he replies? Listen to this verse, verse 20. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And then he confesses in the negative. I am not the Christ. It's clear that the priests, that the Levites, that the um, Pharisees, and therefore, by broader extension, that the people of Israel are searching for the Christ still. Because that is what Isaiah has talked about. If any of you have a an ESV study Bible, or if you looked at notes on Isaiah chapter 40 through the end of the book, chapter 65, I think it is. Those notes, 
you want to know what all of them talk about? The coming Messiah. They don't talk about current affairs. They don't talk about right now. But all of them are forward-looking things that say we're pointing toward the Messiah. But yet, this answer apparently doesn't seem to be sufficient. Because what the Pharisees say is another question. The answer, I'm not the Christ, was not the answer that they were looking for. So they probe a little deeper. Who are you? Let's ask the same question again. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No. Continuing down this path of, are you someone that we should listen to? Are you someone that we are supposed to pay attention to? It would be oftentimes really, really nice if what happened for us when God announces himself in pages of scripture like this, if he said, if everybody had a hi, my name is, and this is my role name tag, okay? If you walk into a building and you're looking for somebody, I have a meeting set up with somebody, it's really nice when you see the first person walks in, has a name tag, and they say, hi, my name is Stephanie, and, you know, I'm the vice president of sales, and you're like, I don't need to talk to you, Stephanie. It's nice to meet you, though. You're like, but what I'm after is I need to talk to the guy in charge of packaging. That's who I'm looking for if his name tag is there. That's who I want to see. So what they're looking for is, are you somebody that I need to listen to, that I need to speak to, that can give us God's words? And John says, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. And so finally, they're getting a little bit exasperated, throw their hands up and say, okay, John, um, then who are you? We need to have an answer to give the people that sent us. Like, tell us so that we can tell our people who you are. And what he does, is what gives away this passage. It's what makes this passage fit in John's storyline for the whole book. And he says this, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. That's who I am. The beautiful thing is, John the Baptist doesn't even give them his name. He gives them his title. I'm the one who's crying out in the wilderness. Now, for some of us this morning, we hear that and we think, what a very obscure name tag to wear. But for the priests, for the Levites, the Levites were the tribe whose job was to know the scriptures and to serve God's people. For those people, for the Pharisees, the guys who knew the law like nobody else, they were the lawyers of their day and they knew it backwards and frontwards they would know exactly what John the Baptist was referring to. Because what John the Baptist is doing is he's exactly quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Therefore, all of a sudden their ears should perk up. And they should say, oh, we do need to listen to you. You're worth listening to. Because you're the one that's announcing the Messiah. But, is that what they get? No, that's not the answer they're looking for either. They said, if you're not Jesus, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophets, then why are you doing these things out in the desert? Why are you baptizing people if you're not Elijah, the Christ, or the prophet? John answers them, 
I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. And this is how great he is. The strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John tells us, I'm the one preparing the way for the Messiah. Not a sufficient answer for them, so they continue to press the issue. Then why are you, why are you baptizing out there? So some of you might say, what's the significance of what Jesus is doing, or what John is doing out in the desert? Why is he baptizing? Well, we got to experience baptism here at Christ the King just two weeks ago. What happened is that Lydia and Dylan stood up, and what happened? When they went into the water, did something super spiritual happen to them? Or was the baptism a sign of something that God had already done in their hearts? It was a symbol of what God had already done in their hearts. Because they stood over here in front of this sign, and both of them said aloud to us, this is what Jesus has done in me. And this is why I'm being done. Not because the water was something super special, but because they were bearing witness to something that super important that had happened to them. And that was something that God had done. And that's exactly what John's doing in the desert too. He's not doing a super spiritual action. He's not saving anybody. He's not giving anybody peace. But what's happening is that there's people that are coming out that recognize the signs. That says John the Baptist is in the desert. He's wearing camel skin. He's eating locusts. He's announcing the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40 has been fulfilled in our midst today. A a virgin 30 years ago had a baby. And the angels announced that baby. And we heard it. And we've seen it. And we know that this is the Son of God. And we know that the Messiah has come. And we're believing in that Messiah, that King who has come. And guess what the belief has done? It's given us peace with God. Not just peace in our circumstances, but peace with God. The Levites, the priests, the Pharisees, they don't get this. They're not tracking with what's happening. In order for us to see this all the way, in order for us to see how does John's announcement provide us peace? How is Jesus the answer for our peace? Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. We're going to read the first 11 verses. John's a really important character. He's the one who's announcing the Messiah. He is the one who Isaiah prophesies about 700 years before. He's the one who's going to break 700 years of God's silence and announce the ministry of Jesus to a people that are longing for comfort and for peace. But that comfort and that peace are going to come to them in a different way than they anticipate. See, what they wanted was a king that was going to come and give them freedom from Roman oppression. They wanted a military leader who was going to come and lead them in triumph. What they get is a different kind of king. A better kind of king. Let's read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. 
speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's pause right there for a minute. The announcement that John, or the the introduction that John gives to himself, means, you're going to hear this in just a second, means that he is the one declaring the comforter has come. Because what God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the advent of Jesus Christ, is that he would come to bring comfort for all of God's people. And the way that was gonna, is going to happen is really interesting. Let me give you some of the context of Isaiah chapter 40. The nation of Israel is not in their homes. They're not in the place that God has promised them that they would be. They're currently in captivity in Babylon. They've been that way for quite a while. But yet, what does God say to his people? He reminds them who they are. First of all, in very um, close and familiar words, he says to them, comfort my people. Then he refers to himself as their God. And what he is doing is he's speaking to tenderly to Jerusalem. Not to the people in captivity. Not to those who are exiled in Babylon. But he's reminding them of who they are and of whose they are. That they're gods. That their home is Jerusalem. That it's not where they're currently in exile. And what he's going to tell them is that their warfare is over. At one time, they were enemies of God, but now they've received peace. At one time, they were far off, but now they've been brought near. And that in the place of their sin, God gives them something doubly better. Not just taking away their sin, but also giving to them his righteousness. This is a foretaste of Jesus Christ. 700 years before he shows up on the scene, we know what Jesus came to do. And how is this the message that we know that the, that the Israelite nation is supposed to hear in John chapter 1? Because voice 3 says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is prophesying that in the future will come one who prepares the way for God. That one is John the Baptist, and he doesn't come riding on a bulldozer to make a literal road into Jerusalem. But what he does is he comes from outside the city, outside of Jerusalem, in the desert, where God's people have associated for a long time, wandering around, and he's come to bring his people home, and to bring peace to his people. We're going to see a voice says, cry, this is verse 6, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field, the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, 
and that our faith with the word of our God will stand forever. What we've seen in John 1 last week is that that very word that God speaks of in Isaiah 40 has now become flesh and dwelt among us so that we can see the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, unlike any other word, is a word that will stand forever, will not pass away, will not fade away. In fact, Jesus, as the word of God, lives forever, interceding for us before God's throne. That's what Jesus does. That's what John the Baptist is announcing is going to happen. He said, I'm not the Christ, but after me is coming the Isaiah 40 Christ, the one who reigns forever. Get you up on a high mountain, verse 9. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voices, strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him, behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those who are with young. And what a passage to give comfort to the people of God. What a passage that should um, elicit this hymn of joy from everyone who heard John. Announcing, I'm the voice in the wilderness. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm preparing the way for something way greater than anything you've ever seen before. But yet he's not what the Pharisees were looking for. All they were looking for is an answer for the ones who sent them. I'll tell you what we get to see. As those who live beyond the cross, as those who have the entire word of God in our hands, what we see is exactly who John was. John the Baptist. And because of John, we know exactly who Jesus Christ had come to be. We know also because of John the Apostle's word that this revelation is given to us so that we might believe in that Jesus, and that by believing in that Jesus alone, we might have life in his name. The nation of Israel is still in a very similar place to where they were in Isaiah chapter 40. Between Isaiah chapter 40 and John chapter 1, there's not a tremendous amount that has changed. Think about it. The Messiah still hasn't arrived they know of. They're still not completely free. They still don't have a earthly and a physical kingdom set up as they wished that they had it. Not everything wrong has come untrue yet. They're still waiting. They're still longing. They're still searching for peace. John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he's declaring the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, is now here. All of us together here are united around the fact that that we were once children. For some of us, for some of you, that time is still pretty near. For some of us, that time is far off. Um, but 
because it's Christmas, let's use an illustration that's like this to explain what's going on in this text. It would be as though you're in the kitchen making cookies. The cookies aren't here yet, but what you do is you have the smell of that cookie. Okay, can you, can you be there with me for a minute? You know what your favorite Christmas cookie smells like? Maybe it's a ginger snap. And that fresh ginger smell, and just the knowing that there's going to be a snappy cookie at the end of that, just kind of stays with you. Maybe you're a sugar cookie fan, or those like vanilla almond bar kind of things. Or maybe you're just like all the chocolate stuff that goes along with Christmas. I want that. I don't have a mark. Whatever your Christmas um, delight is. That's what's cooking in your kitchen. That's the smell that's going on. So you ask your mom, your dad, your grandmother, hey, what are these cookies for? And they say, they're for an event tomorrow. Not satisfied with that answer because what you want is they're for you to consume right this moment. You say, no, but really, why are we cooking them now? Because they're for an event tomorrow. They, well, if they're not for right now, then why are we even cooking them? Because they're for an event tomorrow. It's like, I just got to know, like, what's the deal with the cookies now? That's what's happening in this passage. The Pharisees, the Levites, the priests, they come to John the Baptist. They say, who are you? Not the Christ. No, 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 but really, who are you? Elijah the prophet? No, not them. Then why are you here? I'm preparing the way. No, but seriously, we have to give an answer to the people that sent us. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. This is my speculation based on the text. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but this is my speculation. I think they went away. I don't think they hung around. If I knew that there was somebody that said, the Messiah is really close because of what Isaiah chapter 40 said, I'm going to stick around because I want to see that with my eyes. If I am 700 years waiting to hear from God, eager in anticipation, and somebody says, it's right upon us, I'd be hanging close, I think. I would desire to hang close. But yet that's oftentimes not the the pattern that our heart takes. We're like the kid that wants the cookie right now. We can't wait for tomorrow. We're just like, tell me the answer that I want to hear. And that's going to be good enough for me. Don't tell me the really good news. That's later. Because if we were to go back to a story about cookies, we might be making the ginger snaps. We might love them. But tomorrow, at the Christmas cookie party, it's not just going to be ginger snaps, but it's going to be all of them. We're going to experience the whole gamut, the entire range of joy that comes with Christmas cookies, not just one small thing. That's what John's announcing to these people. But yeah, that's not the answer that they care about. That's not the answer that they're looking for. priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, that's the angle they're coming from. 
They're only looking at the surface level. Who are you? And what do you have to say? Are you important? They should be the ones leading the nation. They should be the one pointing the way toward the Messiah. Yet they're missing it. The long way to Messiah is here. And they've completely missed out on his arrival, on his advent, on his significance. And if you track through the rest of the book of John, if you read all of the other Gospels, what you see is consistently that pattern remains the truth. The Word has become flesh. He is now dwelling among his people in John chapter 1. He's been announced by John the Baptist in just one verse, which I'm going to read in just a moment. He's going to be in their very presence. Yet they're not tracking it. It's not the answer that they're looking for. See, John's merely a shadow. He's merely one pointing the way. But what happens next is beautiful. What happens next is this next day. That's literal. Like, the day after. Tomorrow. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the purpose that John the Baptist discerned. To prepare the way for the Lamb of God. For the one who would take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is merely a shadow pointing toward Christ. He's a signpost. He's the smell of the cookies. He's not the real deal. But what he is doing for the nation of Israel and what he stands in scripture to do for us is point the way to us, for us, toward Jesus Christ. So how does all this connect to Advent? How does all of this connect to Christmas? How does everything that we've looked at from John the Baptist's um, announcement from Isaiah's prophecy. How does all of this come together and point us toward comfort and peace right now? Well, here's one way. At Christmas, it's easy for us to frantically be searching about, um, seeking to find our peace and our comfort in the preparations that we make. Um, I saw, I saw a friend of mine posted on Twitter just a few days ago, and he said, just spent a couple hours getting stressed out about how to budget for Christmas and trying to get everything that I need to done. And this guy, I know him well, and he loves the Lord. But he was just admitting where many of us oftentimes live a lot of our life. In a place of being worried about how are we going to get everything that we need to do. 
And what we have essentially done in that moment is we've taken our gaze off the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, whose advent, whose coming, we celebrate at Christmas. And what we've said is, hey, how's this going to help me get my Christmas list knocked out? How's this going to help me um, bring the perfect dessert to a Christmas party? What we've done is we've put all of our eggs in the basket of, how's this going to help me? For that, for that kind of lack of peace, we're looking in the wrong place. Because we're asking the wrong question, just like the Pharisees are asking. It's great to ask the question, if we come back to the text, it's great to ask the question of John the Baptist. Who are you? And when he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm merely one who points the way toward the Christ. Say, all right, and what I need to do is I need to go and I need to find the real Christ. I'm going to stick around John the Baptist until this guy shows up. And the next day what happens is John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what the response of everyone present should have been is, John the Baptist, you're yesterday's lunch. I'm going to that guy. I'm heading to Jesus. He's the one. He's the real deal. He's the one who, like Isaiah 40 says, brings comfort. Brings peace. In John chapter 5, Jesus is going to tell these same people, the Pharisees, Levites, um, and priests. He's going to tell them these words. He says, you search the scriptures. This is John chapter 5. Verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Searching everywhere in scripture, but yet completely missing the fact that all of scripture points to Jesus, the word made flesh, come to dwell among us come to take our sins, to come to give us peace and comfort, to put away the war between us and God that waged because of our sin and our unrighteousness, of our unholiness, and to, in the place of warfare, give us peace that came through his blood that was shed. The words of John 1, the words of Isaiah, speak directly about the purpose of Advent. The purpose of Advent, of Christ's incarnation and coming into the world, was this. To bring life into the world. To be the light of men. In the Advent of Jesus, he doesn't stay tiny and small in a manger. He came with a divine purpose and with divine authority, with divine intent. And that intent was to redeem sinful men and bring them back into right standing, into a holy and a perfect standing with God. To put aside the war that exists between us and God. The incarnation brings us peace. Not because it brings us only answers to our questions. But it brings us peace because it brings us Christ Jesus, the Lamb of What do we do in light of the Advent? 
very, very simple answer for us. At least it's simple sounding. But it's really difficult. Is this. This Advent season, I urge you, I encourage you, to spend your time not wrapped up in the Christmas tree and the Christmas parties and the trappings and in the gifts, but in beholding the Lamb of God. John the Baptist doesn't just make this aside comment. Like, look, it's the Lamb of God. I make aside comments about people all the time. You're driving along, and I say, hey, look, that's Kirk's car. So walking through um, the grocery store the other day, I was like, look, it's Chelsea. I make aside comments like that all the time. John doesn't just say, oh, side note, there's Jesus. John the Baptist goes, behold, fix your eyes on him, gaze on him, run to that guy, the Lamb of God, because he's not just another dude. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. And there's beauty, and there's hope, and there's life in that kind of statement. Remember, we come to the season of Christmas, and we come to celebrate that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, tells us that he laid aside his glory And he took on our flesh and he lived among us. He came in the form of a baby. Piper over here doesn't do a whole lot to provide for herself yet. Christ came into the world completely dependent on his mother. He came and he lived from infancy to death. A life of 100% perfect, perpetual obedience to everything that God had required. There was not an idle thought or an idle word or a wrong deed that he ever did. And not only that, but there was also never, so there was never a moment where he intentionally broke God's law. There was also never a moment in which anything that he did didn't completely keep and fulfill God's law. It's one thing to try to be perfect in outward actions, but it's another thing to live completely 100% perfectly, and that's exactly what Christ Jesus did for us. We kind of have sometimes this wrong-headed view of who Jesus at his incarnation was. We look at him and we say, oh, it's, it's easy for Jesus not to sin because he was fully God. But yet Hebrew says, no, 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 not so. Jesus was every bit human as you are and tempted every bit in the same way that you are, experiencing our weakness so that he might be a redeemer for us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus laid aside God, took on our flesh, lived life in our stead, so that through his life and death for us, We all of a sudden, for those who are united to Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, we experience all of his blessing. The absence of divine wrath, we deserve that for our actions and our lives and our sin. Jesus took all of that. What he does instead is gives us his righteousness. 
He said, here, here's my perfect record of flawless obedience. Take this. It's yours. And what do we do in light of that? We say, it's not my action. It's the record of Jesus Christ. That's where I stand. That's where I find all of my confidence and my righteousness. That's the gospel in light of Christmas. So what we've heard this morning is we've heard the story of John the Baptist, one who came to announce to the people that comfort had come for God's people. And how does he announce that comfort? He announces that comfort by pointing them to behold the Lamb of God. We've beheld the Lamb of God. We've talked about this is who Jesus was. This is what his life did. This is what his sin-atoning death on the cross did for us. Removed the record of sin that we held and gave us his righteousness. Then, as if that weren't enough, he rose again for us so that we might know that death is not the end. But that resurrection, Jesus rose from the dead so that we know we get life. That's what we behold this Christmas season. So a lot of what we've heard is right theology about God. Guess what? Right theology is applicable to our lives. It's very applicable to our lives. Because when we think correctly, what it begins to do is it changes the way that we think and the way that we respond, the way that we act. It acts as something that changes our hearts. But not only do I want to give you right theology this morning, I also want to give you an unbelievably practical resource. Okay? So if one of the ways in which we receive comfort from God is by beholding God, by beholding the Lamb of God, by looking to Jesus Christ, then let's give us some resources to help. Jesus came to fulfill the words of Micah chapter 5. He'll stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord their God. And there they shall dwell secure, for he will be great to the end of the earth. And he will be their peace. You want to dig into that this Christmas season? There's a great resource that's absolutely free online. And that's called The Dawning of Indescribable Joy by John Piper. If you hop on the Desire and God website, you can download that PDF. And guess what? All of us have enough time to read two or three paragraphs every day in order to make our hearts inflamed with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. To help us behold him in the middle of this Christmas season. So grab that resource. Spend time in it. Because what you'll be doing through that as you gaze intently at his words is you'll start to think this way. I'm guilty of this a lot. I say this as the guy standing up front this morning. I'm guilty of this plenty. There's a lot of times where it's easy to come to Scripture and say, and what are the answers that I'm looking for for my life right now? But when we change that paradigm, when we say, I want to behold the Lamb of God in these pages of Scripture today, what we start to do is think differently. We start to read differently. We start to engage with God's Word in a different way. And what we do is we say, how does this passage tell me about the Lamb of God who has taken away my sin? How does this grow my heart and my affections for this Savior? You will not find peace this Advent season or any other season of your life 
sitting around a fire with friends gazing up at the stars. You may find a temporary feeling that there's a lot of merry and bright and calm. But you're not going to experience peace with God unless you do so through Jesus Christ. You're not going to find peace by eating your favorite nostalgic Christmas cookie. You're not going to find peace by getting everything on your list checked off. But the one way that I can guarantee you that you will find peace this Christmas season and every other season of your life is this. By beholding the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. And if your sin has been taken away, which it has, because of Jesus, if that's the truth, then there will always be peace with God. And therefore, whatever your circumstances, whatever the situations and the trials and the challenges or even the joys of life, there is absolute peace. So I would encourage you, this Christmas season, this Advent season, to come to Christ this morning and every other day of this season and of the rest of your life you would come to Jesus Christ, that you would behold him through his word. And that by beholding him, you would come to grasp more and more what it looks like for your soul to have peace. He, Jesus Christ, is our peace. Why? Because he's broken down the wall of hostility and has made us one What a beautiful, beautiful truth for Christmas. And that is something that you can sink your teeth into this Christmas season. Let me pray for us.